electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, the Magic Kingdom going for broke. ESPN and one of America's biggest casino operators joining forces. We'll have the breaking developments. The energy transition interrupted. Why are so many green stocks bleeding red? Twitter, excuse me, ex-influencers rejoice. Elon Musk opening up the tap on ad revenue sharing. A $53 billion waiting game. When will U.S. chipmakers get a long-awaited windfall from the feds? Plus... Tapping in to a bourbon boom. Some investors are finding liquid gold by the barrel and taking eat fresh to the extreme. You won't believe how many people are legally changing their name to Subway to get free food. It's a thing. All that and much more across the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here and good afternoon out west, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. All of that ahead, but first up on Last Call tonight, meet the new drug king, definitely not the same as the old king. If we asked you, we're going to ask you, why not, to name the most valuable pharmaceutical company in America, what would you say? You're thinking. Many of you might say Pfizer, especially given the huge amount of money it made from the COVID vaccine. Well, if you answered Pfizer, you would be wrong. In fact... Pfizer shares are now below where they were pre-pandemic. They're around 40 bucks toward the end of 2019. They're under 36 today. We'll get more on that in a bit. Maybe you would say Merck or Bristol-Myers Squibb or even Johnson & Johnson. If so, you would still be wrong. No offense. The most valuable drug company in America right now is Eli Lilly. That's right. With today's jump, the quiet company from Indiana is now worth nearly $500 billion. That is two and a half Pfizer's. Shares have boomed about 400% in five years. They are now the largest healthcare stock in the world. So what exactly has Lilly done right? Well, they went after a big problem in America, and that is obesity. Sales of its Jardiance and Monjuro diabetes and weight management drugs, they are soaring. It's also getting traction on another serious medical issue, and that is breast cancer with their Verzenio treatment. Lilly has been knocking it out of the medical park, and the CEO is optimistic that this momentum will continue. There's almost a billion people who could benefit from obesity medications, according to the WHO, by 2045. So um, we need to do a lot more, and we're, we're planning on doing just that. So for Big Pharma, it's not New York or New Jersey or Boston taking the crown. It is Indianapolis, Indiana, and Eli Lilly shareholders, of course. All right, for more on this, let's bring in Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Vice Provost of Global Initiatives at the University of Pennsylvania, also former COVID advisor to President Biden. Uh, Dr. Emanuel, it's great to have you on CNBC and Last Call. 
what is I know you're not a stock person per se, but looking at their drug lineup, what is Eli Lilly doing so right? Well, I'm not a stock person, but they do have a good pipeline. And as you mentioned, they've got a uh, super powerful uh, uh, anti-diabetes drug and they've got an Alzheimer's drug. I think that combination uh, with their cancer drugs has been uh, very powerful and persuasive. With Jardiance and Monjuro obviously going after going after obesity, going after diabetes, but we know the type two side of diabetes. Uh, how big is the obesity epidemic in America? Is it fair to call it a quote crisis? And I don't use that word lightly. And how optimistic are you that some of these drugs will indeed help you know solve a problem that millions of Americans are indeed struggling with? Yeah, it's huge. You have 40% of uh, adults uh, uh, obese. We've got an overweight and obesity problem. And it's not just adults. There are also uh, many uh, children, more than a third of children, overweight or obese. So it's a huge problem. Type 2 diabetes that results often from uh, the obesity, uh, over 37 million Americans. So that's a very, very big problem. Uh, I will say you want uh, say uh, you know it's great to have a drug that's super effective that they have uh, done research on and it does seem you know uh, the Munjaro uh, decreases uh, rate uh, weight on average about twenty five pounds at the higher doses. Mm. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, and the latest news is that some of these weight loss diabetes weight loss drugs may even in fact uh, reduce cardiovascular deaths from heart attacks or strokes. But the real problem is, why are so many Americans getting obese? And it's not the genetics. Uh, we got obese as a country over the last 40 or 50 years, and that's from eating more processed foods, more sugar uh, foods, and to eat the way we are eating, uh, bigger portions, more sugar-sweetened foods, more processed foods, and then to take a drug to counter that the obesity induced by that, seems like a very silly way to it go is it is and you're bra- listen you, as, and i've struggled with my weight like millions of americans at times dr Emanuel, and i learned it's a lot easier to gain weight than it is to lose weight i think everybody can agree on that you, you look at smoking okay we had a war on smoking obviously we know all the hazards around smoking and we went sort of full bore on quit this don't do that let should we do the same thing on what you're talking about, or is it just gonna be as easy as taking a pill, doing what we want, we don't wanna tell people how to live, but at the same time, there is a medical cost to the system. Healthcare is now about 20% of the entire American economy. Yeah, uh, it's not a cost just to the system. Remember, there's someone who pays for all those healthcare costs and these miracle drugs. It's you. and. Uh, if what we, if our solution to the obesity crisis is more drugs uh, and very expensive drugs, we should mention about a thousand dollars a month, um, that is not going to be tenable uh, for the country. And I, I think the other thing is that you know Eli Lilly, it's fantastic that they developed the drug, and don't get me wrong, I think it's a very important breakthrough. 
But they should be contributing a lot of their profits to preventing obesity, not just to saying, oh, we have, there's a billion people out in the world and we can treat a billion people and make uh, become even uh, more financially successful. That is the wrong way to go about addressing this conundrum. And I like your point about smoking, because we thought in the 60s, when the Surgeon General first came out against smoking, that you know it's going to be hard to take on big tobacco. But we ended up taking on big tobacco. It took decades, but you know we made we raised taxes on cigarettes, and we know that has a big effect. We uh, made it socially unacceptable. We got it out of bars and well, then, restaurants. Well, then who do we, Doctor Manuel? Then who do we go after here in, in that situation? Then, if you're talking about going after the some industries like smoking. You know, if you say we need a tax on sugary soda or fast food, you, people are going to say, rightly so, by the way, you're going after the, you know, a large part of the lower economic class in America who rely on, they have food deserts, they rely on these types of places because it's the only place in their neighborhood that might have food. How do we tackle these types of problems but make sure we do it in an equitable and fair way? I don't care if they raise the price of a Big Mac. You probably don't, but a lot of families do. Look. I think that's a serious problem. We can't just raise taxes. We have to address the food desert problem. And what you're pointing out and what we learned from smoking is it's multifactorial. But if all we do is say, oh, big portions, processed foods, sugary drinks, that's going to be fine. Um, we are not going to address this problem and we're going to pay for it at the other end as we already have. Let us remember, we do have some cities that have experimented with uh, sugary drink taxes, and they've worked to decrease the consumption of sugary drinks. We have made drinking of uh, uh, Coke and other uh, soft drinks and other sugary drinks, you know, not very acceptable. Sales have gone down. Water sales have gone up. Uh, we are making progress. And again, I don't think this but, is an overnight issue. And by the way, yeah. with smoking, it wasn't an overnight issue. It's not, wow, it causes cancer, we're going to stop. No, we had to actually slowly make the changes. But yeah. if we don't commit to it, and again, I call upon Eli Lilly to commit to uh, helping make this transformation in our society, yeah. uh, some of the profits it's going to make from Munjarno. Yeah, I, I think uh, we got to let you go, Dr. Manuel. I think the stat is no home we do it. I think 30 years ago, there was no state with more than 20% obesity prevalence, according to the yes. CDC. It's now, I think, every state except for maybe Colorado and two states are now above 50%. Something has happened in the last 30 years, which has caused, it, to be fair, a medical and maybe, maybe even, by the way, an economic and military crisis. Dr. Manuel, let's get you back on to talk about this, sir. We're going to let you go now, but we will have you back on. Thank you. Take care. Been okay, great. Thank you. All right. In the meantime, here's what happened to your money today. A bit of reversal from yesterday's nice start to the week. The major averages took a turn down. NASDAQ losing nearly 1%. Some concerns about bank downgrades there. All right, up next. All bets are on ESPN getting into gambling. We've got the breaking developments on a huge deal. Plus, it is a $53 billion pile of cash, except companies are finding it maybe hard to get their hands on the waiting game for chip makers courtesy of the federal government and by the way you the taxpayer it is your money and we're back right after this
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. And all you sports and gambling fans, there is one big story that you will be talking about tomorrow, and that is ESPN announcing a deal with gaming company Penn Entertainment to launch ESPN Bet. The new sports book set to launch this fall in 16 legalized betting states. This is the first time ESPN's brand will be on a sports gambling platform. As you can see, huh, shares of Penn Gaming surging after hours, they were up, up 26% at one point today. They're now up another 10% after hours. Disney modestly in the green, but if you own Penn, if you're Dave Portnoy, congratulations. Meantime, other sports books, DraftKings, MGM, Caesars, they're all in the red. Remember, all these companies pretty much are going after the same betting dollar, your betting dollar. So it's likely when one wins, the others will likely lose. Let's talk more about what a big deal this really is and bring in the first president of NBC Cable, founder, of course, of this network, currently editor-at-large of Newsweek, Tom Rogers. Tom, uh, ESPN has faced a lot of challenges. They're rolling the dice, pun intended, on gaming. Is this a good move? Will it pay off? Well, I think it is a good move, Brian. Thanks for having me, by the way. I think that it's not as big a move as many contemplated sports betting was going to be for the future of ESPN. Uh, Bob Iger made very clear that ESPN needed partners, needed to transact. This is a partnership. Uh, but many thought that uh, ultimately ESPN might merge with a FanDuel or DraftKings, the two, the two biggest players there. And it looks like that kind of strategic savior as an answer for ESPN is off the table. Uh, this provides some economics, uh, economics which at first glance sound pretty big, a $1.5 billion deal. But that's $150 million a year over 10 years. And just to put that in some context for your viewers, a, an ESPN subscriber on cable or satellite is worth about $150 in revenue a year between fees it gets from the operator and advertising. So this makes up for about a million subs being lost. Now, over the next 10 years, ESPN is probably going to lose 15 to 20 million subs. So relative to the strategic issues that it's facing, this is not going to make up for the secular decline that it faces. But certainly everything helps, and this will help a bit. I just wonder, Tom, you know, you I don't know if you watch ESPN. I do. I watch a lot of it. And 
Pretty much every commercial break, especially during football season, is a betting ad. You know, FanDuel, DraftKings, whatever it may be. I don't exactly know how the ad market works, but if I'm ESPN, I'm not going to want them to be advertising on my network. Do they have the ability to basically block certain advertisers? I actually don't know. I should know. I don't know how it works. Well, yeah, they could uh, in some respects. But uh, I think that's an open question in the deal, and I'm sure Iger's going to get that tomorrow when Disney announces earnings, uh, because that's a huge source of revenue, as you're pointing out. You just get bombarded with those um, ads on ESPN as a viewer. And I don't think for $150 million a year, they're going to want to give up all the ad revenue coming in from other sources. Moreover, the leagues get to dictate uh, to some extent who gets to advertise within slots associated with their programming. And so I I don't think the leagues would necessarily go along with uh, booting those other players out. Uh, So uh, I think that raises the question, hey, if the ESPN viewer is going to still be able to get messages from all these other betting sources, how valuable will this be to Penn? It's a very competitive field. FanDuel, taken New York, has about 50% of the market. DraftKings has about 25% of the market. BetMGM usually has single-digit type share, Mm -hmm. high single-digit type share. That leaves the rest of the market highly fragmented, a number of players. And we should point out Fox, which had its name brand on FoxBet as a betting app, just closed it down. Obviously, the Fox name, also a big name in sports, was not big enough to be able to bring that into the major leagues of sports betting. So that's going to be a question mark here. ESPN is a different animal, of course, uh, but that is certainly not a great track record here. Yeah, they're not. You know, people aren't loyal. They'll they'll tend to move around from app to app. They'll get a little five buck, you know, deal over here. They'll move. But we'll see if maybe ESPN can do some bundling You know that term. Tom Rogers, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. All right, still ahead. Nobody has ever said that the federal government moves fast. And now some semiconductor companies are learning that lesson the hard way. Christina Partson-Nevelis has more. Billions of dollars promised and not a penny in sight. But companies like Wolfspeed here are still expanding. Coming up after the break, we talk about the progress of the CHIPS Act. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back. Tomorrow marks one year since the Biden administration's CHIPS Act was signed into law. It was aimed at boosting semiconductor production in the United States, and it's literally tens or hundreds of billions of dollars on the line. But like with many federal programs, it is not as easy for some companies to get the cash as hoped. So how are things looking one year in? Well, Christina Partsonevelis is live in North Carolina from the headquarters of one company that is going to expand their manufacturing. Christina. 
That's correct. There may be no federal funds just yet, but silicon carbide producer Wolfspeed is still expanding and moving ahead. There are many companies that have promised to spend over $200 billion in investments in the United States, but it's the smaller players that have had to put their plans on hold until they get that federal aid. Listen in. The OSAT sector, the, the back-end semiconductor manufacturing sector that Integra participates in, operates on very thin margins that just don't make it possible without the CHIPS Act support to do this. Well, the CHIPS Act is going to be a big job, which is why the Commerce Department has already hired 140 staff members to help disperse this $53 billion just over the next five years. You know, we're, we're, I'm pushing the team to go fast but even more important to get it right. And getting it right means finding the qualified talent, building the facilities, and then hoping when you build these massive new factories in all across the United States, that the customers will come. The second thing is about making sure we don't build capacity ahead of demand, that we go and make sure customers are signed up to use that demand. The worst thing we can do for the industry and for government-funded programs is to create empty factories. Empty or not, promises have been made by Intel, Micron, Global Foundries. The list continues, and in turn, it could help improve our national security by reducing our reliance on foreign countries like China. But this whole process is not going to happen overnight, is not going to happen over a year, and that means chip companies are still going to have to wait. Brian? Christina, I spoke with the CEO of a smaller, privately held semiconductor company last week, actually. Excited about the prospect, but, you know, worried about some of the regulatory stuff. It's kind of hard to understand. Worried about having to maybe issue debt to raise the money the government can then sort of invest around. Is this or could this be, if you're Intel, it's not a problem. Could this be, though, a situation where the big get bigger and the smaller to mid-sized players, they struggle a little more with the aspects of the CHIPS Act? It's a good assessment. Based off of the companies I've interviewed, the larger players have been very confident about getting the funding, which is why many of them have begun construction and the smaller players have not. But there is other incentives. There's not only the CHIPS Act funding, which is a federal incentive. There is also federal direct loans that would come from the government, about $6 billion, and then loan guarantees. Loan guarantees mean the federal government will sign off on a third-party loan. So to your, your friend who is the CEO of a semiconductor company, you said uh, he could be going for maybe that number two or number three category, which would be either a direct loan. We don't know the interest rates yet on that uh, type of incentive, or uh, being a third party guarantee or guarantor i should say yeah it's a big story and uh, by the way a big factory behind you which hopefully will add on and add jobs in north carolina oh, huge it it, it it we can we got to pan it was that grogan with you who's with you jerry miller we got to pan out go wide no and, no van van applegate who shot that drone footage van the man van hi thank you very much christina appreciate it all right, well, the CHIPS Act is just one of the big spending programs from D.C. meant to help boost the economy and corporate investment. And let's be honest, it seems to be working, at least in some ways. America, it has now added 4 million jobs above pre-COVID levels. That, according to the Federal Reserve, wages are up for many families and the job market does remain tight, especially as many have stepped out of the workforce. But there's also the issue of inflation. And though, yes, the rate of inflation, thankfully, has come down high prices for nearly everything, rent, energy, food, insurance, whatever, remains sticky. 
So how should we really score the economy just over a year before there's this election thing we keep hearing about? Joining us now is New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. Uh, Governor, thank you very much for joining us. How do you how do you score the economy, both yours and the nation's? Well, New Hampshire's economy is roaring. There's no doubt about it. Lowest unemployment rate, lowest poverty rate, very high wages and all that. Our economy is roaring. But nationally, what you have to look at is uh, what inflation really means, right? So Joe Biden is trying to tell everyone, well, hey, inflation's only 5% this year. You're welcome. But that's still a 5% pay cut in the value of your dollar. It's just better than the 10% pay cut he gave America before. I mean, the number that came out, I believe it was just today, saying America is now over $1 trillion just in credit card debt. Mm-hmm. So the debt levels of America are higher than they've ever been. Uh, the burdens are as high as they've, they've ever been. And what you're getting is a fragmentation of the have and the have-nots, if you will. And that's unfortunately what socialism does. Those that, get, those that are, are, are wealthy and don't have to worry about mortgage rates at 5 6%, 7% that are already in their homes, they're going to be okay. But a younger family, a lower income family, they can't afford to be in a house at all. They can't afford to borrow at 6 or 7%. It's absolutely abusive when they're already dealing with massive amounts of credit card debt. Um, when you're dealing with, you know, the student loan crisis, which was government created, uh, to be honest, and, and student loans, as we know, over the past 20 years have far exceeded inflation. I mean, they've, they've doubled and tripled uh, with very little additional value added for the American consumer. So there's all these other pieces in there that are crushing middle and lower income families, and they're feeling it. Now, does it matter well, what, in the Governor, world of what politics? can we, what can we realistically, what can we do about that? And do you think, and listen, inflation is a global phenomenon. Right. Inflation exists in Japan. It exists in England. It exists in Paris. It exists wherever you go in the world because all these governments stimulated how much of the inflation that our families are feeling and getting hurt by. How much of that was created by supply chain disruptions or whatever, and how much of that was created by the government and the Federal Reserve stimulating way too much for way too long, in large part, let's be perfectly honest, to get political points. That, that, you, you hit it. I'll take, I'll take choice B uh, for $1,000 because at the end of the day, inflation is created by one thing. The government prints and spends more money than it has. That's the only thing that actually creates inflation economically. So the government is solely responsible for this. They massively overspent. Um, and and we, you, it's not just Joe Biden. Like, let's not fool ourselves. The Trump administration That's overspent right. by six trillion, six trillion. So everybody in Washington has lost all sense of fiscal responsibility and sanity. They're all economically illiterate. Um, You need leadership there that says, look, there's no way to get out of this without some pains. There's just not. You cannot start talking about controlling 32 trillion without having to make some some uh, tough decisions. And yes, you have to raise interest rates. We knew this was going to happen. Janet Yellen, I said years yeah. ago, should have been fired immediately for trying to tell people that inflation was temporary and transitory because Economics 101 tells you it's yeah. not. She knew what was going to happen to the American people and she lied. She moved markets and lied to your point for political purposes. Now, overall, you can't walk the streets of America as a Republican say, oh, we yeah, have the economy's terrible. Biden did it. You should vote for Republicans. Because first, Republicans have lost the mantle of being fiscally responsible in Washington. I think in places like New Hampshire and uh, yeah. red, red state governors have done a great job of balancing budgets and maintaining surpluses. Um, but, you know, because I, I, wages I, I, governor, are so high, I said, folks I, are getting I, by. But long term, we're in trouble. I said the same. I said, well, trouble. listen, I said the same thing a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I don't you know, I said both parties have been spending like drunken sailors, but I don't want to insult drunken sailors. I mean, because let's be honest, both parties, to your point, doing this because they understand you get elected by promising things, not taking stuff away. And the reality is this. 
Okay, both parties, the leadership tends to be a little bit on the older side. We know what I'm saying. I'm being gentle. And so the reality is most of the people making the deals are probably the power brokers aren't going to be the ones paying the debt. I'm going to buy a Ferrari on my Discover card when I'm 85 years old. I guarantee you that. Let me ask you this. 2024 presidential race. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask if you're going to jump in yet. But I will say this. The former guy held a rally in your state earlier this afternoon. The latest numbers for the betting market predict it. They've got uh, Joe, Joe Biden at 71%. Effectively, it should be 100%, right? Given the fact that he's, there's no debates. I mean, RFK is at 14%, but they're not. The DNC has said no, no debates. That's it. We've decided who the candidate is. Newsom, who hasn't even entered, is at 19%. Is there a chance? Is there, and don't say there, there's always a chance. Governor, is there an expectation that the actual yes. race next year, the final vote, could include neither the current person nor the former person, neither Biden nor Trump. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think there's an over 50 percent chance Joe Biden is not on that ticket for a variety of reasons. Uh, it could be health reasons and his age that it could be the Hunter Biden stuff, which is just barely scratching the surface. The reality that the Democrat Party is going to realize they need to just drive him out. The Democrat Party nationally has never respected Joe Biden in the first place. Right. I mean, he's the old out of touch, rich white guy. They didn't want him in the first place. They kind of had to settle for him. So to drive, So to have him kind of collect his delegates and maybe pass them off at, a, at the convention next year to someone else. I also think that maybe some self-funders are very strongly considering getting in the race this fall. And that would completely change the dynamic, put a new face into the race. I know they're talking about it, talking about coming here to New Hampshire. So there's a variety of ways this could go south for Biden. Uh, Same with Trump. Trump is, look, the former president, still about, uh, at least here in New Hampshire, about 60% of the Republican hardcore base don't want him. In the polls, he only pulls about 41%. Multiple accounts, multiple things. Right? Yeah, the indictments won't get him as much as just he can't win in November of 24. And as Republicans, we're tired of losers. And he's a loser. Just, he's lost it in 22. He lost it in 20. So we're tired we'll of see. losing up and down the ticket. And that reality is going to come to bear. Well, Vivek Ramaswamy's coming up. You got Gavin Newsom, who's kind of doing like a shadow campaign. He's going around the country giving speeches, even though he hasn't entered the race. It is going to be really interesting because we do have more than a year. Governor Chris Sununu, great state of New Hampshire, the Granite State. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you, buddy. All right, still ahead. Quiz time. Can you name the country with the best performing stock market this year? We're going to give you a couple of minutes during the commercial break. Think about it, and then we will come back with the answer. Plus, bullish even for the bulls, the economic call you have to hear. Next. All right, your daily RBI is going to answer that little quiz we gave you before the break. Can you name the top performing stock market in the world so far this year? Well, we can. It's our, it's our quiz. And we know based on how various country-specific ETFs have done. Now, we know the American stock market has had a darn good year. The S&P 500 up 17%. Pretty good. But many global markets have done better. In fact, the S&P 500 ETF, the SPY, is only the seventh best-performing market index in the world. Italy doing slightly better than we are. Our neighbor to the south, Mexico, rocking it. They're up 25% this year. Next up, the booming economy of Vietnam, making investors there, 28%. Oil-rich Nigeria, 29%. Ireland saying cheers to that. It's E-I-R-L, Ireland, get it? ETF also up 29% this year. And the single best global market ETF this year, also, by the way, one of the most volatile in the world over the last decade, is the lovely Greece. If you bought the Grec 
ETF. At the start of the year, you've made 44% on your money, 15% better than the next best market. Obviously, you're buying this in U.S. dollars. And after all the years of economic pain, bailouts, austerity, you name it, Greece has made a huge comeback. And earlier this year, it got a credit rating increase as it made one of the strongest recoveries after COVID. Hey, who does not want to be unlike a semi-isolated, warm, delicious, and grappa-filled island? <laughs> not this guy. You go, Greece. Their stock market, the best in the world this year. Let's talk more about that and other big macro market issues with Catherine Rooney-Vera. She is an emerging markets expert and chief market strategist at Stone X. I know this is all in dollar terms in the ETF, so don't come at me with that, Catherine. I get it. But <laughs> hey, how, how are you surprised? How surprised are you that, you know, Mexico and, and Greece and even old little old Ireland, my people, are doing so well? Yes. Our people, even Argentina, which has which is a serial defaulter, is doing fantastically. Emerging markets are in vogue. And the reason, Brian, is because it's risk on, right? The Fed is staying on hold. It's unlikely to continue to raise rates. The dollar is weakening. So emerging markets are looking really good. And emerging markets, remember, Brian, they were ahead of the Fed. They they hiked rates, Brazil hiked rates more than 1,000 basis points and curbed inflation. I mean, curbing inflation for them is different from curbing inflation for, for developed countries, but they've definitely got it under control. And now they're kicking off the rate cutting cycle. So they're certainly ahead of, um, the, uh, of the Fed in terms of monetary tightening and yields look attractive, especially in this risk on environment. Yeah, amazing. Greece has done so well. Coming home stateside, Catherine, I want to get your take on this. They got a GDP estimate, just an estimate yes. from the Atlanta Federal Reserve. They've got this thing called GDP Now, and that tool, it's an online tool, predicts GDP growth in America of 4.1% in the third quarter. That is bold. That is big. Do you buy it? That is shocking. And if it's the case, then, Brian, there is no chance. And I'll go as far as to say there is no chance that the Fed gets to a 2% target in the, in, the, in the immediate term with an economy that's overwhelmingly service-based in inflation with a core PCE that's overwhelmingly driven by service inflation. So we have a combination of near record low unemployment, remarkably strong economic growth, consumer confidence that's you know bursting, you know, so the misery index is plummeting. Um, you have real wages positive and trending higher so that to me says the economy is doing very well. We're not in recession. We're not on the cusp of recession, not with the labor market this strong. Mm -hmm. The Fed is going to have to make a tough decision, Brian, in my view, in 2024. They're going to have to break something to get to the 2% inflation target, which is their target, arbitrary as it might be, uh, or they're going to have to change the target or cut before reaching said target, which calls into play and puts into yeah. jeopardy expectations. Big, bold prediction. And you say no chance. Catherine Rooney-Vera, appreciate it. Have a great night. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All right. Now let's talk energy because your next guest literally wrote the book on it. Three books, actually. And now he's out with a new piece on the energy transition saying that it's turning out to be a lot more complicated than previously thought as the world has to face the challenge of reducing carbon emissions while at the same time meeting the world's growing energy needs and that we have to think about it in a, quote, multi-dimensional way. Joining us now is Dan Jurgen, vice chair of S&P Global and, of course, noted author. Uh, Dan, good to see you back. What does that mean, multi-dimensional? Well, it recognizes that the energy transition is going to be a lot more complicated than a scenario that just shows things hitting net zero by 2050. 
I mean, it's going to be harder when China and India, which are the first and third largest uh, emitters, have goals of 2060 and 2070. And it needs, and it's, Brian, it's really what's happened over the last two years. It's the things you've been following, the energy shocks, the shortages, war uh, in Ukraine affecting supplies, and this growing north-south divide over uh, energy policies versus uh, and climate policies. And so now you have on the table energy security, energy affordability. Those were really not talked about two years ago, and now they're front and center. And that's why it's going to be more complicated, and particularly recognizing that for developing countries, this is a much more complicated factor because they also have to worry about economic growth. Yeah, and, you know, we've talked about, we talk about the Federal Reserve, we talk about interest rates, and the one thing I've been really worried about, Dan, is I've been looking at some of the results of some of these wind companies or the end phases, battery companies, uh, solar edge, and they've been, they've been a disaster, and they're all blaming higher rates because that people either have to borrow money to buy their products or they have to borrow money to grow their business. This is, energy transitions are expensive over time. How much are, I mean, it sounds weird, but how much is higher interest rates could impact well, the energy transition? I think that's absolutely the case, that those uh, interest rates are affecting uh, projects and they go forward. And add to that something else you were talking about earlier, uh, Brian, which is supply chains. You see that uh, these offshore wind projects or other projects are struggling to find the people, the equipment, and add to that something else which is the reliance of energy transition on minerals. Uh, and those supplies are going to become tight and those prices are going to go up. And that introduces a whole new geopolitical uh, type of controversy because China has a predominant position in world minerals today. Yeah, I mean, the one thing, listen, let the stock market speak. In the last 90 days, I know it's short term, but in the last, well, actually last couple of years, the OIH, which is an oil services ETF, has boomed, and the solar ETF, TAN is the ticker, has actually gone down. Oil's one of the best, that's one of the worst. I think the market is telling a story here, and there does seem to be this push-pull in the oil market right now. Um, Dan, do you think that there is a chance that, that oil could hit $100 this year? Well, <laughs> one has to always be very careful about that. I'd say right now, the view out there is that it's sort of 85, mid-80s. Uh, I think for that to happen, I mean, it is seen that the oil market is tightening. Uh, OPEC plus has been holding back supplies, uh, but you haven't gotten the rebound in China. I think you'd need to see a stronger rebound in China to continue to push up oil prices higher. Uh, so I think it's, uh, uh, and I think the other factor that's out there that's discounted is where does this war in Ukraine go? If the Ukrainians say the Russians are waging economic war against them by attacking their grain supplies and system, well, the Ukrainians may well start attacking, as they started to do, the Russian supply system. So that's a wild card out there and certainly could also affect prices. Yeah, it's a scary and it's a dangerous one, given some of the things that we have seen coming out of the Black Sea. But we'll leave that for another appearance by our friend Dan Jurgen. Dan, thank you, as always, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Coming up, Elon Musk opening up the money hose for Twitter influencers. But is it enough to keep them on the platform? That's it. News alert. Time for a bonus tomorrow's news tonight. WeWork could be circling the drain again. It is announcing that it has, quote, substantial doubt that it can stay in business. The shared office space company, once valued at $47 billion, 
Citing cash flow issues, continued losses, and canceled memberships, WeWork says it will spend the next 12 months focusing on negotiating more favorable leases to cut costs. As you might imagine, shares are diving after hours. We usually don't show you stocks that small, but it's WeWork. It's a big story. The stock is now down 21 cents or 21%, excuse me. They were already down more than 95% over the past year. Of course, serious risk of being delisted from the NYC, but of course, some of the founders of WeWork made, made hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. All right, meantime, a big payday is happening for some users of X. That, of course, the app formerly known as Twitter. They're rolling out a new ad revenue sharing program, which gives users with big followings a slice of ad revenue on the platform. One well-known influencer, a guy named Ed Krasenstein, posting on the app that he's already made over $15,000, basically a monthly payment from ad sharing. So what exactly does this new policy mean for users and for X itself? Joining us now is Mount CEO Mark Douglas. Mark, you, listen, it's only going to be for a select few with massive, I think, 15 million impressions a month. Uh, is, it going to, is it going to work? Does it need to work? Well, I think it does need to work. In order for Twitter to ever live up to the valuation that Elon Musk paid for it, they're going to need to grow the number of users and how engaged those users are. So in you know, essentially now paying creators, content creators to, to participate in the platform more. I mean, it's a classic method. Instagram mastered that. TikTok is mastered that. So the question is, you know, is that going to produce enough ad revenue to pay for it? It's, you know, it's first week right now and people are clearly really happy with the results. But of course, you know, it's good for the posters, but it means that X slash Twitter, they're going to have to pay this out. I mean, it's, it's a big, they're taking a financial risk, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's always a chicken and egg. They, they, the content creators come to the platform, the advertisers follow, they split the revenue with them and then attracts more content creators. I think it's the right path. I think they, you know, kind of creating excitement in the first week. The payouts right now are tiny. I mean, 15000 is obviously great for an individual creator, but it's nowhere near the scale that you can get on Instagram or TikTok. But I think, you know, the folks are always looking for more audience and for more ways to monetize. And Twitter, you know, is is a likely source. So I, it, it's headed in the right direction. I think it's part of this trend. You know, Instagram, Facebook, Meta wants to compete with Twitter, and Twitter is now competing with Meta and TikTok. It, it's great for the whole market for social media users and content creators. I don't know about you, Mark, but I'm old enough to remember like a month ago when Twitter was dead. When threads, Remember that? When threads rolled out and it was like headline after headline, Twitter's Twitter's finished, and now I guess Musk was saying somewhere today that user minutes are at records. Either way, Twitter probably wants to be like a TV network. There's a you know former guy, Tucker Carlson, uh, who's got a Twitter show now. I mean, what do you think Tucker Carlson, whatever you think of him, what do you think he's going to get paid if he does this exclusively on Twitter? I got to imagine it's going to make his Fox paycheck look like dropped nickels to most yeah, people. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the dates that Tucker got fired, I'd like like he was thankful that it happened. Um, basically creating content in that manner and putting it out directly. I think his videos are averaging something like you know 40 million views. Every time he posts, I mean, it's way exceeds what he was getting on Fox. Um, I don't think he's taking payments right now because of his contract, but the money we're talking about 
um, for someone like Tucker is significant. And I also think that the, the content creators are likely to start negotiating deals where some of them are getting paid much more than, you know, you saw in this first week. So the yeah. biggest start get the biggest paychecks. There you go. Mark Douglas laying it out. And thank you very much, Mark. And by the way, a lot of questions that may be answered tomorrow because ex-corp CEO and our former colleague here at NBC Universal, Linda Yaccarino, will join Squawk on the Street in her first interview since taking over from us at 10 a.m. Eastern on Thursday. Catch that exclusive interview. Coming up, though, forget about stocks or bonds or whatever. What about barrels of bourbon? An unusual and delicious way to invest. So belly up. Next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. And maybe you are enjoying an adult beverage right now. And if you are, maybe you wouldn't mind investing in the same thing because your next guest founded a company that is opening the doors to investing in whiskey. Joining us now is the founder and CEO of Cask X, Jeremy Castle. Jeremy, good to have you on the program. Uh, how does it work? How do I invest in a barrel or a company that makes bourbon? Well, our company uh, initially goes out. We purchase uh, a few thousand barrels of new make or new filled bourbon, uh, which its name suggests is just is the liquid is just being put into the barrel. We then uh, separate those up into lots of, say, 100 or 200. And we offer them to retail investors uh, who purchase the barrels. We then uh, help to store them for a period of up to eight years. And of course, over that time, the the whiskey itself is improving with flavor and therefore becoming more expensive. Now, my if I didn't, by the way, it's got to be clear, it's only open to really accredited and wealthier investors right now, high annual incomes, high net worth. That may change, but that's the rule. So if, if I want to do it, I don't think I could meet it, but if somebody wanted to invest in these barrels, are they investing to then take the barrels themselves and drink it, or are they going to be resold and theoretically then make a profit on the difference? No, they're, they're resting it into the liquid itself. So you're, you're not buying the, uh, you're not going to take the barrel home uh, or have to store it, etc. The, the barrels themselves are stored at um, a federally bonded warehouse. Uh, and like I say, as the liquid ages, it improves with flavor. And then at a later stage, and it could be uh, two, four, eight years later, when you decide to sell, uh, we'll help you to sell it to a private bottler. Or, or a distillery that wishes to put that liquid into a, a nice bottle. Yeah, and what's the risk here? Is the risk that the whiskey just is like, and who's making it? Can you tell us that? Like, is this Pappy's or who are we talking about here? Well, yeah, it, it's not Pappy because Pappy don't need to sell. Yeah, they don't barrels, need us. <laughs> no, but we deal with some really great uh, distilleries in Kentucky and Tennessee. Uh, we do a lot of due, due diligence before we select the distilleries themselves. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's a, a tangible commodity. It's something that, as we say, improves your flavor. You can, you can go to the distillery, you can, you can touch the barrel, you can taste the liquid. Uh, yep. It's something real, and it's something people enjoy. There you go. Well said. Cask X is the company. Jeremy Kassler, appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, and before we go, speaking of food and drink, check this out. We are going out and we are going on the road. On Thursday, we are live at the Tin Building in Lower Manhattan. A great lineup of guests, including famed restaurateur Jean-Georges, the CEO of Howard Hughes, 
Ian Schrager, and maybe some surprises live at the 10 building. Hey, come check out the show. Why not? We'll see you tomorrow. Shark Tank is next. Be well. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.